for a fleeting second, you may have heard that there was a financial collapse and a subsequent uprising in the small island nation of Sri Lanka. But do you know what really happened? So, join me, Desh, a storyteller and a member of the Sri Lankan diaspora, in my quest to find answers to the question, what the hell happened to Sri Lanka? Sri Lanka is home to sprawling tea plantations and pristine beaches. That's the stuff of tourism brochures. But this is not a nation that's new to violence. The island, with over 20 million people, holds a long history of strife and turbulence. The island majority, which comprise of Sinhalese, make up at least 75% of the population, while the other ethnic minorities, like the Sri Lankan Tamils, make up 11%, and Muslims and other ethnicities, 10%. Sri Lanka has had an ancient history, a history that goes before 500 BCE into a line of kingdoms and conquest. Next, we had a period of transition featuring the takeover of Sri Lanka by European colonizers and a new Sri Lanka post-1948 independence. A civil war broke out in the 80s leading all the way to 2009 is just one of Sri Lanka's wounds in its timeline. It is a period of time difficult to forget, a war I remember just like it was yesterday. Decades later, oceans away, I still remember. Sometimes I think of things we grew up with and took it as part of our ordinary environment, like the Katunaika airport attack. Now, for those who are unfamiliar, the Sri Lankan International Airport was once attacked by the Liberation Tamil Tigers of Elam, a terrorist group. With home-built planes, they successfully deployed an air raid. And I remember the air sirens going off and me coming outside because we've never heard such a thing. Instead of hiding, me and a bunch of other kids just came outside. The entire Colombo city, which is the central business hub of the country, had its electricity turned off. Air sirens going crazy. And from my vantage point, which was slightly above sea level, we could see machine guns firing to the skies. It looked like fireworks. For us kids, it was like a video game. Then there was a time where suicide bombing was so common. I went to school, which had a baseball team, which I was part of. But I was not very good at it, so I didn't make it to the team. Although I went to practice, didn't make it to the team. I say this because my school's entire baseball team was in a bus that was boarded by a suicide bomber. And I believe everyone on that team died. And for us, the day after, it was sad, but it was another part and parcel of life in Sri Lanka. I also remember talking to friends about how many of our people have died versus how many of theirs have died. It was almost like a game and the propaganda machine of the national broadcaster, both TV and radio, presented a very different narrative to reality. But we were kids. We only knew what was told to us and we believed everything and we took all of these blows in stride because that is life and we still believed and I know I did wholeheartedly during the Civil War that Sri Lanka was the best place on planet Earth 
to live. In this episode, we'll delve deeper into the events surrounding Sri Lanka's civil war. What led up to the war? How did such terror come about? What role did Sri Lanka's most formidable family play in all of this and how it is relevant to the Sri Lanka we see today? I spoke to Sanjana Hattotwa, a researcher and academic who remembers a Sri Lanka pulsing with violence. Sanjana's ever-growing archives ground views contributes to a necessary field of Sri Lanka's civic journalism. He talks to us about how the idea came about through a haunting and grieving personal experience. I started ground views in uh, 2007 after toying with the idea for about a year before. And that was essentially a frustration that is a direct consequence of the Sri Lanka that I grew up in. I don't know what your age is, but um, I was six years old when the pogrom, the anti-Tamil po- uh, pogrom happened in, in July 1983. I only found the words to write about it a couple of years ago. My first memories are of burning bodies. And, you know, for those who, who fortuitously haven't smelt a burning body, you really don't know what it smells like. It stays with it. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm over 45 now and I still can smell what I smelt, even though uh, my parents and my grandparents tried to take me away. And so there are memories and experiences that we don't talk about, can't talk about, find difficult to talk about insofar as what we've seen. And of course, this is much greater for those who were directly affected um, by the violence. I was a six-year-old Sinhalese boy who was bearing witness to things that no boy, nobody, no adult should bear witness to. Just imagine what the Tamil community has had to endure and the memories that they carry with them. And so the point that I wanted to make is that many listening to this podcast may not appreciate fully what the early 80s was like in Sri Lanka. And also for different reasons, what what in Sinhala we call the Bishana Yuga in the late 80s. Bishana is a time of extreme gore and violence. It, a Bishana is, is almost, I mean, it's hard to translate, but it's like a phantasmagoric time. Mm-hmm. And so the 80s were extraordinarily violent. And the point about that is that even as a child, a kid, I couldn't reconcile what I saw and heard and smelt with what Tata, my father, said were, were the news headlines, right? I mean, I lived in Rakhmalana and you could hear all the planes coming in in the dead of night with all the dead and dying soldiers. And the next day, Tata would say, listen, the papers say that there was a great military victory, but nothing about losses, right? So there was a real lived experience-based disconnect between what the media was projecting and promoting and producing, which was propaganda, right? It's agitprop. And what the lived experience was. And of course, you know, it kind of stays with you, I suppose. And I was frustrated again by the inability of the media to bear witness to what was going on and wrong. And that was also for valid reasons. I mean, the, 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 for, well, Mahinder's brother, Gotabe Rajapaksa, was uh, already established as an individual who didn't really take kindly to dissent. Years later, Sri Lanka's officials would find it difficult to give an exact number of losses. The United Nations would report a loss of 80 to 100,000 deaths over a 26-year period, a statistic the Sri Lankan government would vehemently deny. But to understand how such a great loss came about, we must go back to the beginning. A beginning many say started during the infamous Black July riots in the year 1983. 
soon after the singhal only policy we could see the gradual descent the linguistic disenfranchisement of uh, the tamil community then in 1956 we later experienced the galloya massacre and in 1958 again there were communal riots so here again we can see how ethnocentric uh, politics was uh, uh, creating communal tension and uh, hatred so what we need to understand is ethnocentric politics has always been entrenched in uh, sri lanka's political culture it is important to understand that the rise of the ltt was the result of many factors which includes the political failures that uh, eventually led to polarization and discrimination of the tamil community neil devota who is a prominent uh, scholar he has written extensively on the root causes uh, of sri lanka's conflict and also on uh, ethnocentric politics and he best elaborates saying that basically most of these the main political parties were contesting for ultra nationalist uh, votes in a auction like process where one party would attempt to outbid the other party by uh, taking an anti minority stance by having anti minority rhetoric Meanwhile the civil war raged on explosions bombings and deaths were recurring part of the news it seems like there was no into its violence there are many stories that i remember during my time in sri lanka during the civil war i used to study in colombo my family used to live in badullab so every school holiday when i go home the bus ride would involve at least three separate checkpoints at these checkpoints everyone on the bus had to get off while the army at the checkpoints with their guns will board the bus will check every one and their IDs their bags their belongings to make sure that there were no suicide bombers and this happened at multiple locations the LTTE was not like any other terrorist group that existed they were more than just a guerrilla insurgency they had their own governing model their own navy their own diplomatic ties their own ways of putting political pressure into foreign governments to help their cause they were well organized and well funded there were several attempts to find a negotiation the timpu talks the indo lanka accord which ultimately escalated tensions another dimension of this tension happened in the north between the muslim and the tamil communities the muslim community in the north were forcibly expelled with no end in sight to an ever escalating violent civil war in 2002 mahinda rajapaksha came into power his political message was very clear it was time to end the war and he will do it by any means necessary initially the mahinda rajapaksa regime had the intention of going in for negotiations but uh, as uh, the past experiences have taught us ltt was not never genuine in terms of nego- finding a negotiated settlement and one of the other main issues was that this was a terror group or a super insurgent group 
that had vast territory under their control with a large population under their control so it was not only the breakdown in peace talks and it was not only the fact that there was uh, some form of political willingness to negotiate with them but you could see that the targeting of sarat fonseca then the targeting of uh, gotabe rajapaksa those were also key drivers for them to be personally motivated in uh, eradicating the ltt a few listeners may recall that there was an attempt on gotabe's life and he was saved just by the strength of the car that he was traveling in which was secured against suicide attacks there's this wonderful photo it's actually a quite an endearing photo and i mean that sincerely of the elder brother hugging the younger brother so the mahinda as the president mm-hmm. hugging at the time gotabe as defense as the defsec the defense secretary but in that role gotabe became fanged and fascist to a degree that it was not until 2015 that he was even dared to be depicted in a cartoon there is not a single cartoon that you find in the country that depicted the secretary of defense not one and that was the nature of the fear psychosis around not mahinda really but about gotabe the white van you know this this term that we use which reflects the culture of extrajudicial uh, abductions and killings of which sri lanka is one of the highest in the world all led by constructed architected and condoned by gotabe rajapaksa revered as one of the architects of ending the war quickly fell out with the leader of the army at the time sarat fonseca in 2010 when sarat and mahinda were contesting for the presidential election then as sarat receded from public attention also because he was put into prison um gotabe and mahinda became the duo that then led the country in the post war years up until the time when corruption led to an electoral defeat of mahinda in 2015 i don't think when uh, mahinda rajapaksa initially went into the campaign he ever would have thought about defeating the ltt they would have thought they'll be able to curtail them to some extent but eventually they were defeated primarily because one you need some form of national will or political will to defeat terrorist insurgent group so clausewitz often is quoted by saying that all warfare is politics by other means so i wouldn't say that the rajapaksas won the war essentially i would say mahinda rajapaksa gave the political leadership but it was a combined effort you cannot say that there is one victor there it was the soldiers that won the war and uh, i think the credit would go to them and it was also the public that won the war because there was a national consensus not only amongst the singalese community or the muslim community but the tamils were also against uh, the ltt because of the persecution they had to face under prabhakaran so across the world we could see how uh, political leaders often take credit for the successes of others and especially we can see this in the sense of military victories or military successes so even though he provided the platform politically for a full-fledged uh, conflict uh, to be fought and provided the necessary political support for the armed forces to engage the ltt that doesn't mean that he 
or his brother solely played a part in uh, winning the war. So these were all rhetoric or narratives that were constructed in order for him to seize the moment and to entrench his uh, dynastic political ideology. So that's essentially what happened. So that's why we would see that, you know, there were so many writers and artists who kind of propped his image up by even equating him to King Dutugamunu at the time. So this was used as the key uh, campaign slogan, even when he was going up against Sarat Fonseca. So it was essentially the national will and also the military capability that won the war. Gotabe Rajapaksha was the main driving force between Sri Lanka's militarization as secretary to the Ministry of Defense in his term during the Civil War. His family became synonymous with victory over terror, which helped their election campaigns for years to come. Currently, Sri Lanka spends more of its budget on their military, higher than education and health. I talked to Ambika Satkunanathan, a human rights advocate and former commissioner of the human rights of Sri Lanka, to understand more of the culture surrounding it. Ambika is a strong advocate, especially in reforms against prisons, an infamous draconian law called the Prevention of Terrorism Act, and much more. We spoke about Sri Lankan military and its aid in not just ending a war, but creating a new kind of nation. Despite the fact that, you know, we had an armed conflict for nearly 30 years and Sri Lanka was militarized in a sense. We had checkpoints and we did not see the scale of militarization that we saw post-war. Because what we saw post-war is the military getting involved in a lot of civilian affairs, like and also in business. So, for instance, they have a chain of hotels called Liar. Why should the military be owning hotels? They got involved, particularly post-war, in even they would summon NGOs and direct where aid should go, which areas they needed to work in. You needed to get the military's approval. So the military, particularly during the the Rajapaksa, the first Rajapaksa regime, which is, you know, for nearly 10 years, they became, they were made secretaries of ministries. They became involved in civilian affairs. Now, this went unnoticed in the South because it didn't actually impact their lives in any way. But in the North and the East, it was a, East, it was a huge issue because it was very visible and it impacted their lives every day. How? The huge military camps. And military camps were built also, you know, occupying or after acquiring, forcibly acquiring private land. So people lost their homes, they lost agricultural land, they lost their livelihoods. The military ran and is still running huge agricultural farms. Then, of course, we have military presence in the form of surveillance, monitoring, intimidation, harassment. So if there is a protest uh, by the families of the disappeared, you see military intelligence, civilian clothes turn up, they uh, take photographs, they video, they often hear that this is going to happen, that protests or meetings are going to happen days in advance, and they would Call. They would phone the those deemed to be or thought to be the main organizers and inquire about it or try to convince them or intimidate them into not holding the protest. So in the north and the 
East, it is very visible and it has an impact on their everyday lives, which is why, I mean, I've, I've been talking about militarization since the end of the war. But in the South, it, people began talking about it only now, only po only after the Aragali or the protest. And that is because they saw the military being used against the protesters because we have a law in Sri Lanka called the Public Security Ordinance. It allows the president every month to issue a gazette and to call out the armed forces to maintain law and order. So this gazette does not need to be approved by the parliament. People started questioning, why do we need to have the military do this? Why does the military have such a huge budget? Do we need such a large military? But even then, what is disappointing to me is now we've seen think tanks in Colombo talk about the huge military budget and questioning the need for such a large budget. But even then, they are not talking about the militarization in the north and the east and the curbing of civic rights or the fact that the military is still trying to acquire private land in the north or that you have these massive military camps over hundreds of acres and no one even knows what exists there or the fact that the military is surveilling the families that disappeared. That still is not part of the conversation. I suppose it is progress that we've come to this point at least where this conversation is taking place, but I would like it to go further and to look at the crux of the problem. The crux of the problem also is that it was the Rajapaksas and particularly Gothabe Rajapaksa was the one even during Mahindra Rajapaksa's regime, you know, when he was president, it was Gothabe Rajapaksa who was driving the militarization because he was secretary to the Ministry of Defense. And that is also because the, the, the militarization is driven by a Sinhala Buddhist nationalist ethos and about building that Sinhala Buddhist state with the military aiding in that. I think for the Rajapaksas in particular, the military plays a very important role in their ethos, their ideology and their vision for Sri Lanka. As this story unfolds, we try to unpack some of the factors that have led to Sri Lanka's journey through turmoil, bad leaders, poor democracy, ethnic conflict, military regime. But we are yet to address the great elephant in the room. What really happened that sent Sri Lanka headfirst down a rabbit hole of debt and inflation? Can we really pin this on the Rajapakshas? Or is our country's problem with finances far, far older? In the next episode, we will explore how our conversations with our esteemed guests so far all culminate into Sri Lanka's relationship with money. Tune in to learn how the island played a deadly game of profit, debt and fraud with big business players like China and more importantly, with its own trusting citizens. 